Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg and welcome to the second episode of the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the nation's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary, and this podcast is an extension of both their reporting and of their mission. Each week, we focus on major topics affecting the LGBTQ community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. We recently passed a grim anniversary of one year since the first person in the U.S. tested positive of COVID-19. Since then, over 400,000 people in the U.S. have died, a number that doesn't even begin to speak to the loss, humanity, and tragedy of the pandemic. The tragedy has reverberated in other ways, laying bare the inequities of our society from the disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color to the vast unemployment and poverty we've seen unfold this year, always impacting already marginalized communities harder. Of course, LGBTQ Americans are already more likely to experience poverty and barriers to healthcare, not to mention all kinds of discrimination when we seek medical care. So we are really feeling the precariousness of the pandemic. But there is a reason to feel hope. With the arrival of the vaccines and a new presidential administration, we may finally be on a path forward. Today, we're going to be talking about the pandemic's impact on queer and trans people, as well as stories that have specifically reverberated in our spaces. I'll first be talking to Anita Erb, a research nurse who's worked on the vaccine trials and outreach to Black and Brown communities. We'll be talking about the pandemic's disproportionate impact on marginalized communities and all of the work she's doing. Over the past year, there have been parallels made between the COVID pandemic and the AIDS epidemic, and we've seen public shaming play a role in the public conversation. I'll be talking to Matthew Rodriguez, an editor at TheBody.com, and Jason Rosenberg, an ACT UP New York member, in the second half of the show about these issues. To kick things off, joining me now is Juanita Earp, a clinical research operations and nurse manager at the NYU Langone Vaccine Center, where she oversees COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials, including the most recent Pfizer and AstraZeneca clinical trials, as well as Spearhead's vaccine community engagement. Welcome. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So to get us started, I mean, there have been so many stories that kind of talk about the platitudes of these trials. So tell me a little bit more about your work. What exactly does a vaccine trial entail? Sure. So to give you a little bit of background of um, my work, is I've been a clinical research trials nurse for over a decade. And I started my work um, at the Adolescent AIDS Program in the Bronx, where I worked on um, PrEP study for adolescents. I worked with um, HPV vaccine uh, trials for MSM populations. I've also worked in oncology and now I'm currently working as um, the vaccine clinical operations manager and nurse manager at the vaccine center. And clinical trials are very robust. Um, we go through multiple phases before I, anything is um, approved by the FDA for use. We usually start with phase one, which um, at NYU, we participated in Pfizer phases one through three clinical trials. Um, phase one is testing for safety, and we usually use a, a smaller population of really healthy folks to um, test the safety of the, um, of the investigational product, whatever that might be, in this case, the vaccine. 
Um, stages two, we look at additional things like um, side, potential side effects and um, uh, reactions. And we also look at whether or not um, there's initial efficacy in order to move forward with the clinical trials. And then phase three is hundreds of thousands of people um, that we look at globally um, in, in the United States. I know for Pfizer, um, there was about, between Pfizer and Moderna, there was about 70,000 folks who participated in that. And we just closed AstraZeneca, which had about 30,000 um, participants and that we're just looking at efficacy. So there is a long clinical trials process before it actually goes to FDA approval. Um, one of the things that um, really scares people is this notion of Operation Warp Speed. I think that was poorly um, marketed, um, but we did not take any shortcuts when it comes to um, safety. What I'm quite used to in clinical trials is that when it comes to data reporting, we usually have about anywhere between seven to 14 days to enter data. Um, and then we have about you know quarterly monitoring from the sponsors. We actually had sponsors at our site doing real-time monitoring with data turnaround in less than 24 hours. So it was really more of the, the data and kind of the red tape that we, we minimized in order to get vaccines available to the community. I love hearing about the process. I also feel like I can feel the long haul of all the work that you've been doing as you're talking about that. That really comes across. Well, something that has been said throughout this entire pandemic is that COVID has laid bare already existing inequities in our healthcare system and economy. I mean, these are things, of course, that we all know about um, that I guess, you know, are now even uh, more illuminated uh, by everything that's going on. Um, how has it disproportionately impacted already marginalized communities like LGBTQ communities? and black and brown people? So for LGBTQ plus communities, it's been really difficult to get data because there hasn't really been a lot of data specifically on the morbidity and mortalities impacting our community specifically. Um, what we do know is that from an economic perspective um, that LGBTQ people have been hit hardest, particularly if you exist at the intersections of racial and ethnic minorities who have been disproportionately impacted by not being able to work from home, um, being in frontline and essential workers, job loss, um, not having um, housing security. You can't really abide by social distancing if you don't have a place to live. A lot of um, shelters are not friendly to our communities. And so there's been additional housing security. People have been forced back into the closet and back into abusive homes. Um, we have seen that people have not had access to gender affirming care and have not had access to HIV, um, you know, care and treatment as well. Um, and then when you lay that on top of, because people often talk about these communities within the context of these silos or um, monoliths, when you look at, you know, black and brown communities, um, then you have these additional layers where um, indigenous, Black, African-American, Latinx, and Hispanic um, communities and individuals have a four times the rate of hospitalization and almost three times the amount of mortality when compared to white counterparts. So when looking at this through an intersectional lens for the LGBT plus communities, um, we have really been devastated. Hmm. Well, you have in particular been tasked with working on the outreach to different kinds of communities, to black and brown communities, and to deliver information um, about the vaccine and implement inclusive practices for LGBTQ participants as well. Um, what does this outreach look like? Like when we talk about community outreach, what does that actually mean? 
Yeah. So for us, it means for a lot of people, people mistake that in, for recruitment with community engagement. And we're really invested in community engagement. There was a letter that was penned by the Multicultural Physicians Alliance to the CDC prior to the vaccine clinical trials when we were doing kind of the treatment clinical trials, you know, talking about remdesivir, Regeneron, which things like that you may have seen in the news, but there was a lack of diversity in the data. And that's very troubling because we also did see that early on in HIV studies where um, black and brown folks were not included in the data. And people can make these really big jumps and say, well, it doesn't work for these communities, the data show, when you don't actually have a large enough population and sample size. So we are working with communities to get them enrolled in clinical trials um, because we, we need to find out if these vaccines work on those who are disproportionately impacted. But that requires building a lot of trust and that requires two-way conversations. So we've been partnering with... Um, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, um, the center here, LGBT uh, center here in, in Manhattan, on having virtual town halls where people can voice whatever opinions they may have, whatever fears they may have, which are legitimate and based in historical context, based on what we have done, um, you know, what, what the medical industrial complex has done mm -hmm. in research in the past, um, and really having honest, open, two-way conversations. So you mentioned uh, the idea of trust and that also these fears are rooted in uh, very valid reasons. There are very valid reasons why communities of color may be concerned about participating in trials or distrustful of the healthcare system. Um, as you mentioned, this is due to the history of experimentation, such as the Tuskegee study, which is one that comes to mind, um, due to racism and bias among providers uh, that is still prevalent today, of course. Um, how do you think uh, these issues can be addressed when it comes to the pandemic? I think that really listening to people and listening to their fears and addressing their concerns and actually giving them all of the information that is needed in order to make a informed decision about what's best for their own health. I think lecturing is not the best way. It doesn't really get through to people. Um, and I also think that um, denying the history is also very dangerous too. Absolutely. But I, you know, the conversations that I have with, you know, I received the vaccine. I worked on Pfizer and I received both doses. The conversations that I have with people is that I'm open to having a conversation no matter what you feel about the vaccine. I'm not going to shame you or judge you if you don't trust it still, or you have more questions, or you might have read something on social media that's inaccurate. Um, we have to be able to have very open conversations and non-judgmental conversations with our communities. Yeah, I really appreciate how you're always posting on social media that you're willing to have a conversation with people who have any questions or even uh, posting about your own experience um, getting the vaccine. So what is your advice for how we can talk to people in our lives who are hesitant about the vaccine? How could I have that conversation with someone? I think coming from a place of empathy is I think there are a lot of people who are they have legitimate fears or they may have read something that has kind of shook them a little bit but coming from a place of empathy and understanding that people just want what's best for them and so if people have legitimate fears about it and you're just telling them well that's ridiculous that's absurd you're really not addressing why it is that they're afraid it's so just sitting down having a conversation and, and saying i i want what's best for you. I know you want what's best for you and your family. Let's have a conversation. What are you afraid about? What information can I help, you know, provide? How can I help you navigate this? Who can I connect you with? 
and really not coming from a place that they're trying to, you know, purposely just be disruptive um, in some ways. I mean, there certainly are groups that are, but I think right now, given the way that the pandemic was handled overall nationally, there is a lot of legitimate fear. Well, I know that I am really grateful for your work and grateful for all of the information that you've given me today. So thank you so much for joining. Um, Where can our listeners find you? Um, They can visit the Vaccine Center at NYU. And we're available to answer any questions. I do want to have a, a, there is a caveat there. We are a clinical research center. So we are not involved with the deployment of the vaccine, but we are available to have any conversations that you might have about the research. Excellent. Well, um, it was great to chat and hopefully I'll be catching up with you, with you soon. Thank you so much. Continuing our conversation about COVID, I'm joined by my next guest to talk more about the impact of COVID-19 on LGBTQ people and the parallels with issues our communities have faced before. Joining me now is Matthew Rodriguez, an editor at TheBody.com, and Jason Rosenberg, an ACT UP New York member. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I'm so excited to be talking to you both just to unpack so many things that I think have dominated both social media in recent months, also, you know, our own queer spaces, too, that relate to the pandemic. So let's just get into it. Matthew, I want to start with you because... Early on in the pandemic, there were comparisons made between COVID and the AIDS epidemic. And in June, you actually wrote about how they're not the same, but how they are similar in important ways. I know it's been a few months. uh, We've had some time to look back and think about all of these things. But talk me through some of the comparisons we've seen and how you're thinking about it now. Yeah. And thank you for asking that question. And I just want to stress that I think the article that I wrote was really coming from the angle of that they are very similar and that it's it's really integral to our understanding of COVID that we plumb those similarities because I felt like at the beginning of the epidemic, and this actually, Jason knows this, the article started because there was a lot of talk around ACT UP using images made by David Wynarowicz during the early days of the AIDS epidemic and repurposing them and remixing them to apply to COVID. And people felt like you know, these images were sacred and that's not the same. And, and it started this online conversation around COVID and HIV. And I really felt like as someone who writes and edits every day about HIV, that it was important to convey that at the end of the day, all health is structural and, mm. you know, HIV and COVID are both diseases that prey on people who are most marginalized in our society and and ultimately will affect those who are already overburdened by a really terrible health system. In in many ways, you know, there is the idea of government neglect. They did not manifest the same, but there is government neglect at the federal level and at the state level on fighting this illness. There has been a criminalization of both illnesses. HIV criminalization is a huge issue. And already in many cities, we've seen people, uh, we've seen police used to enforce rules around COVID. So, you know, to me, the the, possi- the possibilities for comparison are kind of endless and, and they're much more to me important than saying like, oh, this is different for this reason or, or, or that reason. It's, I think it's really the, the meaning of it is where we're finding the, the similarities between them. Jason, how are you thinking about this? Please jump in. As Matthew mentioned, we had many extensive conversations about this. But I think also one of the main things, too, is that a lot of the forefront of people responding to this pandemic have been veterans of the HIV AIDS epidemic, which is, you know, as a reminder, is still ongoing. I think there's so much neglect that is happening in real time as we, you know, see state and federal responses. We see Cuomo um, putting forth a new state budget that has Medicaid cuts. And 
how 340B funding and how that will affect people living with HIV. So we have to really um, be intentional about how we see one pandemic ripple effect on another. And I think, um, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of the advocacy spaces that I'm in, including the COVID-19 working group, includes a lot of people from a lot of the same circles, including Housing Works, ACT UP, the Center for HIV Law and Policy, Treatment Action Group. I mean, the list goes on. And we talk about a lot of these issues that Matthew brought up. We talk about disease stigma. We talk about policing criminalization, protecting the most vulnerable, pharma greed, political inaction, accountability, etc. The list really goes on. And I think when we break down a lot of these different themes and issues, we'll see how we can talk about one epidemic to address another and how it's so important to do that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you're getting at is that there are parallels here. And it seems like some of the activism, uh, you know, with the HIV epidemic um, has now is something that people are drawing on now uh, in their approach. I mean, how have you seen that kind of resonate? I mean, I think a lot of public health spaces, we talk about disease stigma, we talk about shame, and we talk about how a lot of these can be a pathway to policing and criminalization. I think that's one of the main issues that, one, we have still not defeated with HIV. And two, we still have people in positions of power that are using policing and criminalization as an impulse to fight a public health crisis. Even in New York State, a state legislation called S08261, which is making COVID-19 transmission illegal. And it's codified in law just in August. We have Mayor de Blasio using the sheriff's office to implement um, enforcing quarantine. We have NYPD implementing vaccinations for vulnerable communities. These are all things that should not be happening in a public health response. That is something we're really trying to uh, you know, tackle. And it's something that's still prevalent in the fight against HIV. <laughs> I have seen shame just play such a huge role in terms of the pandemic, employed as a a tactic in social media spaces to try to get people to social distance or, I mean, it's just, it has been so in both, I've experienced it in interpersonal ways. I've experienced it watching the news. So Matthew, I mean, this word is just so at the top of my mind, and I know there is also a lot to unpack with it. What role has shame played in the pandemic, do you think? Well, you know, I think... Shame is such a loaded word and there's ways that we all deal with internal shame, but then there's also the act of kind of wanting to others to feel shame. Um, the idea that, you know, someone needs to feel shame for this thing that they did. And ultimately, I feel like that comes from this cultural idea that health is an individual thing, that the health, your your health status comes from individual choices. And we see this play out in a multitude of ways every day, right? If you have HIV, it's because of something that you did. If you have, I'm type two diabetic. So people say to me, or, you know, people may not say to my face, but some people think, you know, you got that way because you ate that hamburger or, you know, or you ate this thing that was bad for you. And now you have type two diabetes. We live uh, in America in a space that believes that health is the culmination of a set of individual decisions. And that's not the case. I mean, health is structural. I can tell you, you know, if you tell me the zip code you were born in, I can tell you what illnesses you're most at risk for. 
because um, health is geography, health is culture, health is sociopolitical, socioeconomic. It's all of these factors that are sometimes out of our hands. And so, you know, Jason and I have had a lot of conversations. I'll just say the three words is gaze over COVID. You know, that is kind of the shame factory that operates in this sense of like, you, these people have done this bad thing and you deserve to be outed for it. And I want to bring up two different books that I'm reading to kind of, or have read to kind of illuminate my thoughts on this. You know, one of them is Changing Lenses by Howard Zare, and it's a book about transformative or restorative justice as opposed to punitive justice. And so much of what we're taught about punitive justice, if you think of like law and order, is like, you know, when you do a crime, it's not you versus a person, it's you versus the state. You've done a crime against the state or like just people in general. And punitive justice, when you're in the justice system, like they want to know what happened when, and it feels like this impulse to find out who was on the boat that was overturned, who was in Puerto Vallarta, like, let's get their names, let's tell people. And it's very, to me, it, it reeks of that punitive justice type thing. And I think that there are ways that we can envision transformative justice or restorative justice for like, how can we, as a community, as an LGBTQ plus community, have a conversation about what justice actually looks like in, in this milieu? Because it, it's, it's very complicated. I think that the people who behind gaze over COVID are trying to stage people as villains and victims or offenders and victims. But the thing is, is that in all crime, offenders and victims both have needs and those needs to need to be met. And so we need to be talking about how people can interact and be social, which is a big thing that Julia Marcus at Harvard Medical School has been talking about. What is the scale of risk that people can engage in without having to, you know, go overboard, not to use a term about the part of our vote, but like how we can <laughs> teach people about scales of risk so that we can have a fulfilling, thriving life under COVID. The second book I want to shout out really quick is We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown, which I just read is on my desk. And it's a book that is asking you to ask questions about what happens when we call people out online. And in it, she talks about like, is the calling out actually bringing awareness to something that is happening that you didn't know about? There are moments like as, an, as a New York Times journalist, it made sense to write a story about Harvey Weinstein because that was something that people did not know was happening. Gaze over COVID, like we know people are not wearing masks. Like that is not to me actually bringing awareness of something because... I can tell you walking down my block that people aren't wearing masks in Brooklyn. I can tell you that straight people aren't wearing masks from watching the news. So I don't actually think that we're learning anything new. I think that is engaging in this circular shame spiral mm -hmm. that is not actually adding to the conversation. Jason, do you have any thoughts about this? How have you been uh, thinking and talking about the idea of shame? <laughs> do I have thoughts? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think we all have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Matthew brought up Julia Marcus from Harvard, um, who's an epidemiologist and specializes in PrEP and HIV. So one of her recent tweets, especially revolving around gays over COVID, is, quote, blaming COVID-19 on misbehavior may feel relieving, but it can also erode trust, deter disclosure, undermine positive social norms around risk reduction, and distract from st structural factors contributing to infections. And I mean, for a 140 character limit, I think she just does such a good job on breaking down basically the harms of shame. Like basically we know from a public health perspective that shame is an ineffective way to reduce behavior and to actual contact trace too. So with public health officials, people 
need to instill trust in community so that they can know, are people traveling? Are people in groups? We just passed a contract tracing law in New York, thanks to NYCLU, and we need that trust. And if we're not having that trust because of fear and shame, then we're eroding that trust. And a lot of what Julia brings to the table too is um, an emphasis on harm reduction. And basically all the way since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of you know state-funded commercials and city-funded commercials about abstinence and what staying inside means, what uh, mask wearing, but we haven't found ways to evaluate risk. And what does risk mean in a time of pandemic? And we think of how communities survived, especially marginalized communities survived in the beginning of the pandemic. And in that case, 1983, when the government didn't do anything that we had to fend for ourselves and actually source uh, materials and source community to find livable ways to actually thrive during a pandemic. And that's you know, it's so daunting because there's so much death. And I think that's what we've seen from the early years of the AIDS epidemic. But basically what's missing from the conversation is the emphasis on harm reduction. And one more thing too, is that when we think about the deadliest outbreak of HIV, we think of Pence, who was kind of the, what was that Operation Warp Speed about this pandemic. And the reason why we had the deadliest outbreak in, in history in Indiana is because his inaction about safe injection sites and needle exchange programs. And that's an area of harm reductions. From one failure of implementing harm reduction to another, this is what we're facing. One of the things that Julia Marcus said to me when I spoke to her for an article I wrote in May, I think, was called, We Need a Plan for How to Have Casual Sex in the Epidemic or in the Pandemic. And I spoke to Julia and she was talking, she, and I think this is a really important point. She was saying, you know, when we're talking about risk and when we're talking about harm reduction, that means that everyone at every step of the risk scale deserves protection of some sort. And I do think that people use shame as a way to separate themselves from what they're seeing. They're saying like, that person did this thing. I would never do that thing. And I am not like that person. But I think that the offshoot of that is that I think shame or the arousal of shame online really does open the door for the augmentation of state power. Like, I think that that is a call that asking for people to, you know, be fined or be jailed or think anything that augments the power of the state ultimately hurts black and brown people and black mm -hmm. and brown queer people. Like Jason and I have both been accused online of defending rich white gays. And I think the thing is, is that that's who you see in Puerto Vallarta, right? But if we call for increased policing of COVID, it's not going to be the Puerto Vallarta parties yeah. that are that are policed exactly. it's going to be black and brown queer people ultimately and then the last thing i want to say is people use shame as a way to separate themselves from the actions they see but i do think that instead of thinking about difference let's think about sameness because uh, health is structural and there are ways in which we all operate in the system that ultimately harm health do you live in a building that uh is a gentrifier building that adding to gentrification harms health um, have you ever called the police? Policing harms health. Have you ever supported a company that pays their workers minimum wage or, or you know, tries to get around paying them minimum wage like, or, you know, doesn't pay a living wage? That is harming health. So instead of thinking about like, okay, these people went to party in Puerto Vallarta and I didn't, we need to think about the ways in which we all contribute to these systems that keep people unhealthy. You know, there's a lot of calls for increased policing and increased incarceration during COVID. But what we see is prisons and policing are the epicenter of COVID transmissions. 
And, and also when we think about the parallels of HIV transmissions as well. So when we think about cops defying mask wearing and distancing, when we think about prisons not being prioritized in the vaccine rollout, this is the public health failure that people like Governor Cuomo and, you know, we're even seeing deadlier in Governor Newsom in California. This is why, because they are not listening to public health officials. We've seen half of New York public health officials literally just leave because de Blasio has not been listening. You know, when we talk about gays over COVID, we literally saw that account use the LAPD as a source for public health intervention. And it is such a harmful tool. And we even see Boston's over gays over COVID, which have outed people's HIV status and have used anti-PrEP crusades. The same shame has materialized into AIDS shame. So this is what we're seeing in real time. Yeah, sometimes I also wonder if people's willingness to participate in the shaming on a personal level is also because the pandemic was so poorly handled from a public health perspective that people feel like in the absence of control or answers or even like the scarcity of resource, they feel like it's the only thing that they can even go to personally to try to have some control over what's happening. I feel that and I see, you know, I think it's so much easier to shame people on Instagram, but, you know, this is something, and I will be vulnerable and say, I talk about this in therapy all the time. You know, I don't think that shame is a useful weapon against people. I think that shame is a useful weapon against institutions. I do believe that like, you know, Congress people are part of the institution. You're not shaming, obviously you're yeah. not shaming like the Congress person, maybe for the thing they did, but like, you should shame our elected officials if they're being inactive about the situation. But I don't think that shame works for people. Like, you know, I, I don't think that that's a useful tool for human flourishing. And that's ultimately what I'm concerned about and what I want. But I do think that shame works in institutions. So if you are feeling the urge to shame someone, <laughs> please email an elected official and don't comment on gays over COVID. When you have that inclination to shame, just just look up your local congressperson or somebody who is not doing the thing that Absolutely. they should be doing and send and just put that energy in their direction. So moving beyond uh, kind of to be a little bit more forward looking, what would y'all like to see happen next? I mean, in terms of the conversation around shame, I mean, is there a better tactic to use? What would you like to see the conversation be about? No, I, I don't, you know, identify with the people who are going to Puerto Vallarta, um, like on some level, or, and I don't really want to go to Puerto Vallarta right now. But I do understand that impulse to go out and not be cooped up. Like, I think that because of the massive government inaction, this pandemic has gone on more than humans were, are supposed to stand, you know, like, we are so far beyond any understanding and any like, this was not supposed to be this long. We've seen other countries be able to wrap it up and, and not get back to life as completely normal. You know, I do think that COVID will be with us for a long time and it'll change how things are. But this way of life, a lot of people are trying to make it sustainable. And there are people who their vision of sustainability includes Puerto Vallarta. It doesn't for me, but I understand the impulse. And so for me, it comes down to like, what about it? Can I understand? And what about their situation do I do I empathize with? There are a lot of there's a lot of it that I don't. I want to see the humanity in it as well. I'll add to that. I think what we have to understand about COVID is that this is still very new terrain. Um, this is a very uh, new virus. We have new strains, and I think we have to be patient with that, and we have to be pa patient with each other. So I think 
as Matthew mentioned, we have to really up the ante on mutual care, mutual aid, mutual solidarity. We saw that in the way beginning and, you know, it kind of fluctuated between periods, but I think that's what we have to do more now than ever. I think what we have to shift that energy when we see that impulse and this has to do a lot with public health. There's like a, a jerk reaction when we see something or behavior that, you know, is not a societal norm or is not helpful to others is to see what ways we could shift responsibility from that individual behavior into systemic and government action. So calling out electeds, emphasizing city and state education, which include harm reduction tools, and really making valuable resources that are community-driven and not only demanding that from you know people who you know will take their sweet-ass time, but for us to actually implement it ourselves. Well, one of the words that you said is patience. And this made me think of when I was talking to Juanita about, uh, I think she said the word compassion, being compassionate with people who have fears about as we look forward to the vaccine, who who want to find information, um, who feel hesitant. What kind of conversations would you both like to see in queer spaces that could compassionately address those who are still on the fence about all of these things? That's a, a tough question. <laughs> I, I think if we had the answer, then we would just be done. Then we could just wrap up this podcast, yeah. say we're finished. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. I think our platforms are ultimately the worst ways to engage in these types of really prickly discourses. The amount of times that I've had to DM and reply people and et cetera. And I think that's partly due to the environment of a COVID era is that in-person and interpersonal community. And we're missing that right now. So we're not gathering at the center, at the LGBT center in Chelsea, like active veterans did in the height of the epidemic. We're not doing that because we're missing that interpersonal connectedness. We are having, you know, online organizing spaces, which are, you know, are happening. We're having in-person protests, but we're not having these important town halls. We're not having these discussions where are meaningful, are thoughtful, and will actually lead with care and solidarity and not with divisiveness and villainization, which shame often does. Going off of that too, like with my therapist, I speak a lot about anxiety and fear. I'm someone who has an OCD diagnosis and anxiety and fear are things that I live with every day. When I think about those things, one of the things that my therapist, two of my therapists have spoken about, one in LA and one in New York, I moved big story. But my therapist always talked to me is like, when you have anxiety about something, you almost want to push it away. And there's a need to engage with it. Because like a Scooby-Doo villain, the anxiety is often wearing a mask, and you need to take it off and see like what the actual problem is underneath. You know, you have to engage and talk with your anxiety and fear. So I think that like people have anxiety and fear about the a vaccine maybe, but that they need to engage with it instead of just writing off the vaccine and, you know, really think about what they're worried about. You know, if their worry is something like nanoparticles that are like tracing you, uh, microchips and stuff, maybe that's not realistic. Like if it's like some kind of I am legend scenario, not realistic. But I do think that once you unmask that anxiety and that fear, once you wrestle with what's underneath it, and then you take into account what it means to look out for other people. Because ultimately, I think I'm I'm getting the vaccine once it's offered to me. I haven't gotten it yet. Um, once it's offered to me, I'll get it, not only for myself, but because I think I owe it to other people to get it. Even if I, I don't have anxiety about getting it at all, but I think even if I did, I ultimately wouldn't allow it to supersede my compassion and care for other people. 
Yeah, I definitely feel like I'm also the reason that I wear a mask, the reason why I social distance, the reason I will get the vaccine when I can is because I I care about other people. And I feel like for me, that has been one of the most important things that I've been thinking about that, that then motivates me to do these things. It's actually learning that it's my care for other people that motivates me. I think a lot of these COVID conversations are about short term care and short term responses. But I think what why people are having such trouble with these conversations is that they're not thinking of long-term disease stigma. They're not thinking about long-term criminalization laws. And when I think of even the word long-term, I'm going to like trip over my words here, but uh, my uncle who was a long-term survivor living with HIV died of COVID um, this past April. So I think about um, how our long-term survivors have been neglected mm-hmm. um, in our current addressing of the AIDS epidemic and are even now neglected in the COVID pandemic. And that's who I'm thinking about. So when I get my vaccine, I'm going to be thinking about him. I want to piggyback off that and say that Jason and I are people who believe that AIDS isn't over. And a lot of the conversation around both epidemics has this idea that, you know, AIDS is rent and that's it and it's it's over. And that's not the case. We're living under twin pandemics. And I think that another thing that HIV can teach us is that COVID will not be over um, and that we need to know what it means like to live with illness and to not be afraid of it or stigmatize it. Because one thing that our, all of our human bodies do is become ill in some way. And that's why we need Medicare for all, because to be sick is the most human thing. To feel weakness in our body is so human. That's why we need to care for each other. And so I think that we can look to our people living with HIV for such a long time as models for how to live with COVID. And I'm, and I mean live in the sense that we will not all have COVID, but it will be a part of our lives for a long time. And we need to learn from that. Well, this has been such a thoughtful conversation. It has been such a vulnerable conversation. This has been so incredibly informative as well. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. And where can our listeners find all of your work? So I'm on Twitter at Matthew Rodriguez, and that's Matthew with one T and Rodriguez with a G and a Z. I'm an editor at The Body, and I freelance all, you know, at a few different places. I'm at Twitter also. Um, my name is Jro at my name is J-R-O. And you could also find a lot of ACT UP resources at actupny.com. Before we go, I want to talk about a story that lifted my spirit. Over the weekend, Jojo Siwa, a performer and wildly famous YouTuber, came out as gay. Jojo is 17 years old, she has 12.1 million subscribers on YouTube, and she built her persona around being fun and nice. Her songs and content are overwhelmingly positive and seen by so many kids. This is a huge deal for Jojo's audience. It means that this massive star who's seen as family-friendly and an example of good behavior is regularly in the lives of kids. They don't have to look further than any screen to now know a gay person or even see themselves reflected and validated if they are LGBTQ. There's a viral TikTok going around of a little girl with two moms who talks about how this already means so much to her as a Jojo Siwa fan. You don't have to look far to see the impact and excitement of this story. On a more personal note, it wasn't until I was in my late teens and maybe even early 20s before I saw a queer person in the media who I felt like I could connect with and who helped me recognize who I was. Having someone to look up to early would have made all the difference. Bottom line, Jojo and other queer kids deserve love, acceptance, and safety when they come out. 
And this means they'll have another model of that. Welcome to the family, Jojo. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Phil Browning, and Melissa DeMonts. 